Police responded to a 911 call. Dramatic video of gun insanity in the Bronx. Police releasing a new video of a person that they are still trying to track down. Defund the police is not the answer. Many people surveyed said they just don't feel safe in the city. It's a shooting outside of a store. This is Bo Deedles. True crime. Police this morning are searching for the person who turned this Harlem platform to a crime scene. A Red Apple Media Podcast Network production. Now, here's Bo Deedle. Welcome, everybody, to Bo Deedle's True Crime Stories. Well, I have the great author, Peter Lance. Now, I met Peter Lance back in 2003. He was friends with one of my FBI friends, Cindy Coppola. And I'm going to tell you something. Of all the books that I've ever read, this is one of my top three books of all times. And I've got three copies of it in my homes all over the place. And this story, this topic has to do with the biggest tragedy, I really believe, that was cast upon the United States of America by these terrorists back in September 11th. Now, the book we're talking about is 1,000 Years for Revenge. When I got this book, I started looking through it and I started reading about it. And we're going to talk about Every aspect, because there was a lot of movies, TV series made about 9-11, about the connection with the FBI, not telling the CIA this, that, guys taking flights and all that. But Peter Lance put it together in such, I can't use the big words, but perpetuity, is that a word? Forever, in perpetuity. Bo Deedle will be remembered in perpetuity as a great detective. Yeah, but the thing again is that, like I said, this book, A Thousand Years for Revenge, talks about exactly leading up to the 9-11. And even the 9-11 Commission, I believe, actually took your book and looked at a lot of your stuff there. And all these ignored things. And I mean, this thing started as soon as way back into 1989. And they missed all the most important points. And I was around during, we called the World Trade Center one. That was the bombing. Right. And I think we how we do is we start on a time sequence here, Peter. And I want to welcome, right. this is the great Peter Lance, A Thousand Years for Revenge. This book, you have to get it if you want to know the facts. This is not Hollywood. This is not made for TV movie. These are facts. And let's start from the beginning as far as, and I lost one of my dear friends when the World Trade Center was hit. My friend John O'Neill, who's in the book, and he was one of my drinking buddies from Elaine's, and I feel very close to it. So let's start from the beginning, Peter. Okay. So what happened was I was a former correspondent for ABC News and in the late 80s and eventually went to Hollywood, and I wrote screenplays and fictions, a couple of novels over the years. But the morning of 9-11, divorced sadly from my only wife, Donna, beautiful woman I met at ABC and we have three wonderful kids and she was living in New York with the kids and I was in California. I'd go to see them, you know, every month. And the morning of nine 11, I'm in, you know, LA and I'm watching TV. I see the first, the North tower gets hit first, you know, by AA 33. And I'm like, like everybody, I was like, what, you know, how did this happen? This wasn't the greatest intelligence failure since Pearl Harbor. It was the greatest intelligence failure since the Trojan horse, as I later found out. So the only way I could figure out how to look into this, and my son, by the way, Christopher, had just started at Stuyvesant, the great Stuyvesant High School, which Mm -hmm. is like two blocks away. They used it as the triage center for the guys that worked the pile. So literally, his second day of high school is 9-11. So after I knew, I finally got through to his mom. 
She ran down to pick him up. And as soon as I knew he was safe, I decided I've got to look into this. You know, I was, I'm an investigative reporter. I'm classically trained. I need to do this. I need to find out what happened. And the only one of the big then five uh, intelligence agencies I could look into was the FBI. Why? Because up until this moment, the war on terror, as it was known, was investigated by the U.S. government through the FBI's New York office, the NYO, and prosecuted by the SDNY, the greatest prosecutor's office there is, the Southern District of New York. And there was a series of legal cases, the original World Trade Center bombing case with Ramzi Youssef, and then eventually the Day of Terror prosecution with the blind Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, who is in the news today, by the way, we'll mention that briefly later on, and a series of other cases that I was able to get the transcript of and begin to try and connect the dots. And one of the reasons I chose the title A Thousand Years for Revenge is that there's a saying in radical Islam, if it takes me 10 centuries to kill my enemy, I will wait a thousand years for revenge. Now, this was about payback. This was about the Crusades, right? We yep. took their castles and they came back and took ours. And when we go back to the beginning, now in the timeline, of course, the book is setting to a timeline, like in the 70s right. and 80s, like in Afghanistan, people don't realize the Mujahideen, uh, what the hell's the name of that thing? Mujahideen. Uh, that one Mujahideen. too, yeah. They were involved with our CIA. We sent more than $3 billion for them to fight the Russians back then. And then right. Osama bin Laden was there. Now, Osama bin Laden, now I have been to Saudi Arabia two dozen times. He come from a very well the Saudi Arabian family, and he was in right. Afghanistan, but he hated the Americans. He hated the Americans right. more than anything. So he got in bed with the in Afghanistan with these Abadabadus that were fighting the Russians, and they were supplying them with the Stinger missiles and all that. So now, basically, right. we jump to July of 1989. Why don't we start there, and why don't we start right. uh, the FBI surveillances, and this would be with the beginning of, uh, believe it or not, these were the beginning of some of the original people that went into our buildings. Go ahead. Right. And the big headline on this first book, and I wrote three books, this one, A Thousand Years, another book, Cover Up, and the third one called Triple Cross, all of them for HarperCollins between 03 and 07, connecting these dots as I got more and more information over time, putting the dots together. But what happened was Osama bin Laden and the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, is crucial because he was the broker for the three billion in aid from the CIA, and they had a, a good purpose at the time: get the Russians out of Afghanistan. What they didn't realize, the U.S. intelligence, was the depth and breadth of radical Islam that Bin Laden and Al Dr. Al Zawahiri most recently killed. You know, in Afghanistan, his number two, who is also from a very wealthy family in Egypt, their depth of hatred for the United States. And this thing starts with a like a mob-like murder. You got to. Let me give you this one little quick story. There was a guy named Abdullah Azam, who was kind of a major leader, and he had set up this fund called the, the MAK, the Office of Services for the MAK, to raise millions and millions of dollars all over the world, particularly in America, to fight for the Mujahideen, these guys fighting the Russians, right? Mm -hmm. So all this money is coming in all these mosques, including the El Kifa Mosque on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, another Brooklyn mosque, and one in New Jersey, on Jersey City, that became very crucial points. So Azul Azam wants to use, after the Soviets are dispatched in 89, he wants to use the money just to set up an Islamic government in Islamabad, in Kabul, in Afghanistan. And bin Laden and the blind sheikh want to use it for the whole worldwide jihad against us and everybody else. 
So they murder this guy on a Friday. He and his sons are going to Juma Friday prayers and a car bomb blows him up. So it's like a mob hit. Where, where, and where was that, Peter? That was in Afghanistan. Oh. They took it. They took over this, you know, essentially this fund. And the blind shake gets past a watch list. Many people believe the CIA helped them as payback for the war. And, gets and into the United States. And people can remember the blind shake. It was Rahman. He was the one that looked like freaking Santa Claus with the Santa Claus hat. Yeah, he had that. That was a very. He was a religious scholar. And by the way. He was the head of a thing called the Algama Islamia, this terror group responsible for the Luxar massacre and other things. And he was the only people say bin Laden put a fatwa. No, bin Laden and al-Zawahiri couldn't put fatwas. That's a religious decree to kill somebody. Only the blind sheikh could do that. That's why he was so powerful. And he becomes very important in the story and how I tracked down the truth of how they, the FBI in New York office might have stopped the first bombing. So let's cut to 1989, mm-hmm. as you said, summer of 89. The FBI Special Operations Group, SOG, which is responsible for bringing down Gotti because they planted the mic in the apartment above the Ravenite Social Club. They were the best of the best, the black bag boys, right? And they, they're following because they got word that there's some kind of radical activity going on. Up until this point, terrorism in America was really like the bombing of the Francis Tavern in Lower Manhattan, right? Yep. The notion of international terrorism, foreign terrorism was restricted to, you know, just following Russians, chasing Russians at the UN. That was mm-hmm. what counterterrorism was for the for the FBI. So they have this joint terrorism task force that they've kind of put together and it's not really very aware of what's going on. And that and they and basically the bureau has these guys, the special operations group, follow a group of MEs they call them, Middle Eastern men from this, uh, the Al-Kimfa Mosque, out to Calvin and Long Island. You might have even been out there yourself. Yeah, I've, I've shot at that range, yeah. They, yeah. they were going it's to that a, range. It's just a, yeah, it's a big sand pit out mm-hmm. there. At least it was then. I don't know what it's like now. You can go pay a, a couple of bucks, and you shoot targets. And you literally had these guys were shooting, you know, like AK-47s. And in the group that was that weekend that the FBI followed, it took multiple photographs of over several weekends in the summer of eighty. Nine, when George Herper Walker Bush was in the White House, there was a guy named Abdullah Azam, redheaded Egyptian, and Mohammed Salama, mm-hmm. El Sayed Nasser, and two other guys, and they were being trained by a guy named Ali Muhammad, who is very important to the story. I'll get to him. And they have all these photographs of these guys, and for unknown reasons, they just stopped the surveillance. Nobody knows outside of the Bureau and the DOJ knows for sure why they stopped. Fast forward. 19. Oh, yeah. Let's fast forward to a very important date. November 5th, 1990. We have Rabbi Meyer Kahani is murdered. And how does that come into play? And Rabbi Meyer Kahani was a very respected man, but he was, you know, the head of a kind of a right wing Israeli group that wanted to basically ban Arabs from the state of Israel. And so he's giving a speech at the Marriott Hotel on Lexington Avenue one night. And who opposing as a Sephardic Jew wearing a yarmulke, who guns him down is El Sayed Nasser, one of the guys from Calvin Surveillance. <laughs> and he, who were the getaway drivers that night? Abu Lima, the red-headed Egyptian, and Salama, <laughs> these two guys. And, and, and Abu Lima is driving a taxi, but the good NYPD, the smart cops at the time, are waving these taxis. Nobody's waiting outside this place. We've got a world figure here. Kahani, this is before they knew that he was going to be the object of violence, just for security. So when Nocera shoots the rabbi and kills him, he runs. Oh, he isn't dead yet, but he's mortally wounded. He runs out 
and tries to jump in a cab. He jumps in the wrong cab, and the cab driver looks at him, and he's waving this gun around. And so the cab driver stops, and he gets you know, Sarah runs out, and a postal uh, inspector who's just getting off work on Lexington sees him. There's a gun battle. Boom! He shoots no Sarah, and so now he's wounded. And he and the rabbi are in parallel stalls at Bellevue Hospital. And Nocer lives, the rabbi dies. Mm-hmm. Now, that should have been a huge wake-up call for the feds. Why? Because they go to Nocer's house in New Jersey, and they seize 47 boxes of evidence, <laughs> including top-secret memos from Fort Bragg, from the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare School, where none other than Ali Muhammad, who is this the spy of Al-Qaeda, has enlisted in the U.S. Army, and he's coming up on weekends to train these guys. Unbelievable. He has all this top-secret. So what happens? At the time, the NYPD calls it a lone gunman, even though they arrest Abu Lima and Sulima. They're never connecting anything together. These are the no same same meatballs. Right, so then we jumped. Now we fast forward to Let March fast March eleventh, yes. ninety one. This is yeah. important. So ninety one. So there's this incredibly ambitious young competent FBI agent named Nancy Floyd is working Russian foreign counterintelligence. She walks into a, a flea bag hotel in Times Square and meets Ahmed Salem, S-A-L-E-M, this incredible guy, former Egyptian intelligence officer. He was there when Sadat was killed. He comes to America, falls on hard times, drives a cab, works as a stock boy. He's at this hotel working as a clerk at mm-hmm. night. And she's looking for Russians in flagrante delicto to compromise, you know, get well, him we, in a we, 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 we and did, so she recruits but, him. She yeah, but we did. We missed, we missed something, Peter. There was this struggle between Rahman and the other gentleman there. No, we, we haven't gotten there yet. We, well, okay. we, let me just give you the, if you don't mind. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. So Nancy Floyd sees this guy, Salem, who loves America, and he wants to, and she's the FBI, and he's like, anything he can do to help. So he helped her with a couple of uh, immigration cases, and then one night he says, there's a man in this city more dangerous than the worst. Okay, so wait, now, this is important. Peter, this is important. Now, we got to understand something, people listening. Nancy Floyd is an FBI agent. She befriended this Egyptian army major, and his name is Salem. And this person here now is said that there are these assets are all over our country, and it's a very dangerous thing to our country. Go ahead. Yeah, well, first, he specifically focuses on the Sheikh, who by now has been, you know, got into America, would some say the help of the CIA. And he's living in New Jersey and he's preaching at all these mosques. And he'd be preaching violent rhetoric at all these mosques around New York City. So Salem being Egyptian. And by the way, this is all Egyptian around bin Laden and al-Zawahiri, who are Saudis. These are all major Egyptian figures in this in this scenario uh, at the hierarchy of al-Qaeda. So he's very well aware. He says, there's a man more dangerous than the worst KGB hood in, in, in New York, the blind sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman. And she starts uh, to write R-A-C-K. And he goes, no, it's R-A-H, okay? So she says, listen, how much are you making a week? He says, 500 a week. She says, if we could get you to go undercover, would you? could you do it? He says, of course, for my America, I will do anything. So she gets this guy to go undercover. First, he's interviewed by the 
FBI agents who know, you know, Arabic and Egyptian and everything. And they go, man, this guy's the real deal. They give him three months to infiltrate. Guess what? They go to the trial of El Sayed Nocera at the 100 Center Street, right? The, the Law and Order Courthouse downtown. And on one side, there are all these barricades. you got the rabid, you know, Al-Qaeda sympathizers on one side, rooting for Nocera, the defendant. And the other side, you have the Jewish Defense League guys rooting, you know, who's Kahani's people rooting for a conviction, right? And mm-hmm. it's like a madhouse down there. And Salem wisely goes and he gets into the crowd and he presents himself speaking perfect Arabic. And within days, he's not only in these guys, he's walking the blind shake around like wow. he's a bodyguard. He's so we had, it, we had an undercover right with Santa Claus. Asset. Asset. Wow. At the top of the of the conspiracy, okay, that's about to blow, hit the World Trade Center with a bomb in 1993. So, long story short, well, I'm fast forwarding. I'm doing the best yes. I can to give you the headlines. So, uh, meanwhile, this is an important little factor in the fire department to show you how well placed some of these guys are. What and uh, Nocera worked at a, as a clerk in the civil courthouse downtown, and there's a guy in the F, uh, at the F. The SDNY back then was a building, was on Livingston Street, the old headquarters before they built Metro Tech, right, in Brooklyn. There's a guy named Ahmed Amin Rafai, R-E-F-A-I, and he worships, uh, he lives in Jersey, and he worships at the mosque, the blind sheikhs, uh, the preachers, and the alleged El Salam, the mosque of peace in New Jersey, which is located, you know, on the third floor of a building. He, so... Suddenly, somebody finds out after the fact, and I have to introduce the character of Ronnie Booker, this heroic FDNY fire marshal who ends up dying incredibly heroically on 9-11. He was an ex-Green Beret, and he had a top-secret clearance in a military intelligence unit, and he was looking at a lot of this intel at Defense Intelligence Analysis Center in Washington. He was aware of the threat, and he kept banging on the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force, and they wouldn't let him in. Hey, guys, this... These guys mean us harm. There's some stuff going on in New York City with these, you know, extremists. Not all Arabic people, not all people. Yeah, are yeah, he was on it. This but is a radical one or two percent. So they're ignoring Ronnie Buka. But later, Ronnie Buka finds out that this guy, prior to the World Trade Center bombing, Ahmed Amin Rafai, they're throwing out some old files, and he asked if he could take some home. And they're the blueprints of the World Trade Center. Oh my God. This guy got them ahead of time. I'll get to that later on because later when Ronnie Buka begins to you know, investigate on his own, he finds video of this guy on the arm of the blind shake walking him to one of his immigration so now all like these bodyguards. All these pieces of evidence, because this we're going to get to 9-11 in our conversation here, but this is we now will. leading up. So now you have, you have uh, Ronnie yeah. Buka, real American hero and right. all that. And then all of a sudden, right. this guy that I knew, a real creepitation here, this guy was one of the heads of the FBI. His name was Carson, Car- Dunbar. Carson Dunbar. Now, the Salem, the guy who was undercover, deep undercover, they want him to wear a wire in there, and he didn't want to wear right. a wire which I don't blame them. I mean, we're getting right. this, this important information. Why should we jeopardize it, yeah. putting a friggin' wire? Go ahead. Right. So Carson Dunbar is an ex-Jersey State trooper. He works his way up in the New York office of the FBI, very fastidious dresser. I interviewed him at one point. And he doesn't like Nancy Floyd. In fact, his number two, John Krauthammel, Hammer calls her a bitch in some meeting that they have. They don't like Nancy because she's a feisty woman, number yeah. one, okay? And she's in Russian foreign counterintelligence, but she's the one that's really trying to educate these guys. 
And uh, there are two other agents uh, that uh, John, well, uh, people, John Antisev is an FBI agent and Louis Napoli from the NYPD. Mm. And they're, they're, they're like kind of the handlers for Celeb, right? But mm. they're, you know, they're, they're not, you know, Celeb is like trying to, he's like Paul Revere. So Ronnie Book is Paul Revere over on one side trying to sound the alarm and Salem is on the other side and he's now undercover and they're, and, and literally Dunbar's insisting you wear a wire. So Salem says, no, man, they'll, they pat me down. I'm dead. They'll right. kill my family. Right, let's, let's just, and he pulls out, he yeah. withdraws, he withdraws in the summer of uh, 1992. Well, let's get it. There's important, there's important thing. Now, Salem was developing that there was going to be a bombing plot and he was right in there right. at that time. Then right. all of a sudden yeah. he withdraws from the cell. Let's set up the use off the blind sheet. Let's set that up now. September right. 1st. Go. Right. So Lem is going up to Attica to visit Nocera and he's vamping and he's showing phony bomb fuses. And he's like any good undercover person. He doesn't want to, he can't commit acts of violence, but he's playing these guys and yeah. learning valuable intelligence. And so Nancy pays him his last $500 at the Subway sandwich shop right out, outside of 26 Federal Plaza. And he says to him, there's some guys in this town. Uh, they say there's a new guy coming in. A real bomber is coming in in September. I don't know exactly when, but. Follow Salema, the big red-headed Egyptian, and uh, Abu Lima and Salema, and they will take you to whoever this new person is. And Nancy, she goes, listen, I'm out of this. They they don't take me seriously at all. You must do this, Nancy, or else don't call me when the bombs plural go off. Wow, there might be multiple. And then we introduce, then we introduce Yusuf. Come on, bring him in. Ramzi Yusuf, a brilliant, trained in Wales as an engineer, grew up in Kuwait. Absolutely brilliant. He was, listen, real quick, in order to fight a war, you need two things. You need operations and intelligence. You need people blowing stuff up on the ground, right? And you need uh, the spies. Uh, Yusuf was a world-class bomb maker, and, and you'll hear the heinous plots that he later constructed, including 9-11. He, Ramzi Yusuf designed the 9-11 planes as missiles plot, okay? And the intelligence was this guy, Ali Muhammad, who's down at Fort Bragg infiltrating the U.S. military, okay? So they were covered, man. This thing went, like, many years, you know, starting in 1989, uh, back prior to the bombing. So meanwhile, Yusuf is in, he's highly visible during the weeks, he's the, uh, the fall of 1992. There's several accidents. He ends up in the hospital. He's uh, Salema, uh, you know, the little driver, the guy that came back to pick up the receipt for the rider truck, mm-hmm. and they pinched him. You know, all this stuff is going on, uh, but the, the FBI fails to follow Abu Lima and Salema, and sure enough, the bomb goes off. And um, Yusuf puts this yeah. urea nitrate fuel oil bomb in a yellow rider truck, and he parks it on the B-2 level of the Trade Center. Now, here's the, this is a very important point, real quick. If he had, this was not a, a, a problem of the power of the bomb to do the job. He wanted to knock the Tower 1 into Tower 2. That was his plan ultimately realized on 9-11 in a different way from the air. What he did was, Bo, he parked the thing on the B-2 level. If he had parked this bomb next to the the, bath, the World Trade Center, sat in kind of a concrete bathtub that kept the Hudson River out, all right? Three-foot wall. I'm very familiar. Concrete. I was an iron worker on the original two twin towers. Go ahead. Were you? Yep. Oh, my God. Okay, so if he had, if he had put that bomb against the seawall, it would have made 9-11 look like a Disney movie because the entire Hudson River would have gone all the way would up have opened to that wall. You understand? Flooding, flooding the subway tunnels, killing 
<laughs> tens of thousands and that, that could York. and that could have weakened the one tower to come down. But so now, oh, absolutely. So now, but here's the thing. So the night, the day of the bombing, when this happened, so Yusuf is across the river watching the smoke, and and six people died, including a pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. But you know, thank God. But it blew down through three fours of eleven inch thick rebar and concrete. Ronnie Buka shows up that night. Why? Because Kevin Shea, one of his friends, and Ronnie had been in Rescue One, the greatest heavy rescue company in the world. And Kevin Shea, he was wounded, so Ronnie visits him in the hospital, and Ronnie says, "I'm going to find out who did this." Okay, mm-hmm. that was what what set the hook in Ronnie Buka to pursue this. Okay, so I'm flashing back and forward as any yeah. great story does. So now. Uh, after the bombing, Ahmad Salem, Nancy Floyd gets him back. The FBI is desperate to talk to him, right? And he agrees to go undercover now and to risk his life again. And they pay ultimately pay him $1.5 million for what he did. And he sets up a sting operation on the blind shake. And they create this plot later called the Day of Terror plot, where they're going to blow, they're going to do the, the George Washington Bridge, the Lincoln Tunnel, mm-hmm. the Holland Tunnel, the U.N., so they now this finally the bureau gets smart and they have a, a, a warehouse in Queens that they wire with video, 24 hour surveillance. And he's, you know, like vamping there again. But guess what? Carson Dunbar is still giving this guy grief, you know, and that way, you know, wanting at one point, you know, he wanted him to, to replace the uh, he had to bring an actual real bomb trigger in just to, yep. to show the guys like he was legit. And it wasn't a, a problem because they were on top. They could have interdicted it immediately but Carson Dunbar he was ready to leave multiple times and Nancy Floyd kept pulling him back finally the day of the bus they they don't tell give him any word and they rough him up and everything else but he becomes when Patrick Fitzgerald and Andrew McCarthy these two August assistant U.S. attorneys try the blind shake and 11 others and it's like nine month trial and Salem is on the the stand for 30 days under withering cross-examination they convict these guys, and the blind shake, as they're leading him out, issues a fatwa yep. on, uh, we must kill Satan. You know who Satan is, and he referred to Salem as Satan, because this is important. This is in the news today. Seditious conspiracy is the term they're going after the Oath Keepers for right now. So, and very the, the most successful prosecution by justice of seditious conspiracy prior to now was with the blind shake, because... Salem caught him in a wire, like a briefcase with a tape recorder and saying, you must go after the U.S. military. And those words allowed Fitzgerald and McCarthy to convict these guys. Okay. Salem was the hero. He goes into witness protection for 14 years. How do I know all this stuff? Because when he came out of witness protection, he contacted me first. And I was able to tell his whole story. Oh wow! Okay, let's let's jump because this is getting really wor- yeah. you know. Right. Okay, so now okay. we're now right. we're March fourth, nineteen ninety four. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This little Yusuf garbage can, he escapes out of of the United States, right? Then he gets involved with a bomb targeting the Israeli embassy in uh, Bangkok, and he starts doing some tricks all over the country. He kills Benazir Bhutto. He tries to kill the prime minister of Pakistan. He ends up in Manila. 
where he conceives three plots. This is James Bond villain level stuff. First, he's going to he wants to kill Pope John Paul, who's visiting Manila yep. in January of 95, which would have like would thousands killed because he would have done like a Boston Marathon bombs on each side of the street. Second, he comes up with this incredible plot to bl- blow up airliners coming into the U.S. called the Bojinka plot, yep. where he's going to smuggle these explosive devices, and he puts one on a 747 bound for you know Singapore, or Philippines. Early yep. morning, uh, yeah, early morning hours. He gets off on the first leg. The bomb blows, but there's nobody on the flight. But he wanted to use it as a blasting cap to go down on the fuel tank of the plane. But he was, again, he he miscalculated positioning, as he did in the Trade Center. So several rows too far back. But it blows a hole right to the fuselage. They can see the China Sea down below. Unbelievable. They know it's going to work. I remember this. I think the important thing, too, is then all of a sudden the, the agent, Nancy Floyd, gets investigated, and they're saying that she was having yeah. an affair with uh, Salim. Yeah. And then all of yeah. a sudden, I'm trying to fast forward because we got to get yeah, to the I main. Know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Okay, so, so well, but, uh, make, make a yeah. long story short. So Yusuf and Murad is a lifelong friend, Abdul Hakim Murad, who's a pilot trained in four U.S. flight schools because the third plot they were plotting in the fall of 94 into early 95 was the planes as missiles plot. I approved that they had this plot in Manila, and I went to to, to the Philippines. A lot, a lot, of, people, the, lot of people the don't know. There was a plot to put these bombs on these planes, and that was as far back as 1994. Now, did we learn right. of this then, plot? Wait, wait. Well, this is important. There were three. The, the bombs on the plane was one thing. That was different. This was the not, but there was also the nine, what we would now call the 9-11 plot. And Mohammed, uh, Abdul Hakim Murad, Yusuf's partner, was going to be the Mohammed Atef, the lead pilot. Mm-hmm. They had plotted that. And they, the reason they, that was exposed is they, Murad, uh, Yusuf escaped. They had a fire in their bomb factory. Yusuf escapes. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is his uncle, okay? The so-called mastermind of 9-11 is Yusuf's uncle. It's not a big stretch that these things are connected between 93 bombing and 9-11. The FBI, to this day, denies any connection between the two. But, so did the 9-11 Commission. But nonetheless, so Yusuf and his uncle... Well, that was... Uh, hold on, Peter, 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 Peter. That was the one where they wanted to bomb the Pentagon, the Sears Towers, and the World Saint. That's yeah, going back to 95. Right. So this was on the target list already. Exactly. And not only that, but let me just tell you real quickly what happened, what, how they learned it in the Philippines. This Colonel Rodolfo Mendoza, who I interviewed, they finally, they tried to torture Murad and it didn't work. It never does. Waterboarding, etc. So they, he basically put this guy in a barracks and he flipped him using trickery and guile and, and sleep deprivation. And he gives up the whole the plot of the, the Ramzi Yusuf and everything. And that leads them to Islamabad. Eventually, they get uh, Yusuf is arrested in Islamabad. A guy walks into the embassy there get, that Yusuf's still trying to get. He's the Energizer Bunny of terror. He's still trying to get bombs on planes. But they capture Yusuf. They render him back to New York. And when then he was in on the New helicopter. York. I got this on right. the helicopter. I got this. I was talking to John O'Neill about it. when he was flying by the World Trade Center. He said, we'll be back to take them down. That came directly. Right. I heard that directly yeah. on it. Yeah. So let's yeah. fast forward. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So they actually circled the towers that night. It was a beautiful night. And he says variously, I'll be back. He says, they're standing for now. They're standing for now. Whatever. You know, it was a threat at the towers. So now we go to... The fact that the U.S. feds in the Southern District got this intelligence from the Philippines. How do I know? Because I interviewed the, the diplomatic security agent who put the intelligence from Mendoza into a diplomatic pouch and brought it 
and to the embassy, and he saw it addressed to the Southern District of New York. So we know the feds had this information in 1995. In the Bin Laden Office of Origin, Squad 49 in the uh, FBI's New York office was the Bin Laden Office of Origin. So they were by now, in 1995-96, they're very well aware of the threat to New York post-World Trade Center bombing. And they now they get this intelligence that Yusuf, who's been arrested and rendered back, has all these plots. They try him, not for the, you know, the 9-11 plot hasn't happened yet, of course, but they try him and they convict him for this Bojinka plot to blow up the plane. The plane. Southern District convicts him. And okay? now, now, now let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to 9-11 now because I want all the listeners to understand something. When you get the book, you go through the chronological order. When you finish reading it, you say to yourself, oh, my God, we knew this was going to happen. And then during this time in 97, we're talking about them being in involved with blowing up the embassies and blowing up we're going that back that was Ali to- Muhammad see that's why I ended up writing the third book called Triple Cross so on peterlance.com my website p-e-t-e-r-l-a-n-c you can get a timeline for the original I have a timeline in my first and third book like scroll through 32 pages I call it the little golden book of terror that gives the whole overview of this story as we've told it to this date but then the importance of Ali Muhammad comes in because Ali Muhammad was also being handled by the FBI, had an agent on the West Coast. And Ali Muhammad, <laughs> the, the brilliant mastermind, that the, he, let me tell you who Ali Muhammad was. You've got to hear this real quick, because as, as heinous as Ramzi Yusuf was, Ali Muhammad was on, the, on another level. Ali Muhammad, literally, he was Al-Zawahiri's boy, okay? Egyptian, Egyptian, okay? Al-Zawahiri is the guy guy that that we just whacked, the guy with the glasses. We just whacked, the number two guy. Yeah. yeah. So Al-Zawahiri adopted this guy, Ali, because he knew wisely they needed intelligence. So Ali was an ex-commando, and Ali Muhammad basically was also on a watch list, but he was recruited by the CIA in Hamburg, and he blows his cover and he's on a watch list, but he sneaks into the United States on the plane. He meets a woman. He marries this woman at a drive through wedding chapel in Reno. Now he's in Oakland, California, where he enlists in the U.S. armies in his early 30s. And he sets a record at Fort Benning for the 440. He ends up at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare School at Bragg, where all of the top secret Green Berets are trained. I mean, the, you know, Delta Force. And on weekends, so he starts coming up. He trains the original bombing cell, as I said. But now let's fast forward. He also goes to Afghanistan. He moves bin Laden's entire uh, entourage out of of Afghanistan to the Sudan. Mm -hmm. He trains bin Laden's personal bodyguard. And ultimately, the system works. He's trying to infiltrate a guy from Canada, a big terrorist. And the Mounties catch him, the Royal Canadian Mm -hmm. Mountie Police. They grab this guy and they put Ollie into a room. They, you know, and it's it's not like a, you know, it's Canada, right? So they're polite. But he gives him a number. He says, call my FBI agent, John Zent. The FBI agent vouches for him. They let him go. What does he do? He goes and plans the African embassy bombing where a thousand people are killed in, in Nairobi, Kenya. And, they would and go, only they, after that. You know what, Peter? I could sit here for four hours with you on this thing. But listen to this, please. Yeah. I want my people yeah. listening and listening and believe what I say. This book yeah. has the chronological. It goes right into it with all these people, these hijackers that eventually caused 9-11. And the thing that really jumped out at me was September 2000, before 9-11, Mary Jo White and Jim Kallstrom, they had a big news yeah. conference, and they're talking about that they did these investigations. And in reality, all the sp- 
smoking guns were there leading up, the flight schools, right. all that, and the U.S. coal went down. Everything was happening, yeah. and I'm just trying to sum it up right and now. And they're patting themselves on the back. Right, they're having they a news conference saying, we stopped all where these terrorist the attacks. Party, but the reality the was, party? the reality Windows is. Windows of the world, wait a minute, they had the party celebrating how great they were at Windows on the World. And that was the 2000. At the top of the t- when you pick September. up when you pick up this book, Peter Lance's book, when you read about it, you know what you get out of it? You get anger. You get anger because this was all there, including my friend John O'Neill, who was with my other friends, and they were hunting down the Bin Laden task force, and all the mistakes that were made. We had all the intelligence in the world, Peter, and the FBI had information that didn't share with the CIA. You could watch any movie, but what I tell you, you buy this book, A Thousand Years for Revenge by Peter Lance, and Peter, tell us where we could get it, please, because this is so important. What you just heard yeah. was just a sniblet, yeah. and you follow this chronological order. You want to throw, yeah. you want to throw the book against the wall and say, "Damn you, intelligence divisions!" Because three thousand Americans died, and they didn't have to die, and we could have stopped yeah. it. We had all the information. Right. Peter, how do yeah, people get this about, book? They, they said they said it was stove piping between the agencies. BS. The FBI, the Bin Laden Office of Origin, had all these dots. They failed to connect them for multiple reasons. On my website, PeterLance.com, at the top left corner, there's the timeline that takes you through the whole story. But you can also, you can't get the book from me anymore, but go to Amazon.com, A Thousand Years for Revenge, International Terrorism, the FBI. My second book is Cover Up. My third book is Triple Cross about Ali Muhammad. And you can, if you scroll down on the right-hand side, you can order all three of the books through my website, uh, peterlance.com. I, so- I want to, I to, Peter, first of all, you're, you're a great journalist and you're a great friend of mine, but I want to tell all my listeners, if you get one book, and I hope you're making money still on the revenge one, uh, the Thousand Years of Revenge, to me, this is the most important book in American history, linking up our biggest tragedy, written by my friend Peter Lance, phenomenal journalist, and I recommend our other book as far as with the the great mystery there at Homicide at Rough Point. And all my listeners, this is so important to understand what Peter Lance did. I met him then. I got him on the Imus show. Imus had him on the show. The book became the bestseller of the New York Times bestseller. This tells you the facts. Don't watch this crap on TV, these TV series. This has the facts. This has the names. Everything that you want to know about the biggest tragedy in American history is in this book. And I recommend everyone, 1,000 Years for Revenge and also Homicide at Rough Point by Peter Lance. Thank you, Peter, so much for coming on the show. I could have stayed on you for about a week with this book, but I had to make it shorter. I apologize to you, Peter, because this is so interesting. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bo. Great to be with you.